guys and welcome to this panel on cinematic worlds in games. My name's Lithia Judge, I'm a video games journalist and that is a low rumble. <laughs> it's a very dramatic start. Um, today I am joined by Jack Attridge who is the creative director and co-founder at Flavorworks. We've also got Joanna Pearson who is uh, the senior game tech programmer at Guerrilla and we've also got John McCannon who's the creative director at No Code. So, creative technology in games. I mean, I was visiting my dad, actually, uh, a few months ago, and dad's not played games for a really, really long time. And I played him a trailer for Cyberpunk. And um, literally, at the end, he was like, that's amazing, but more Glaswegian. In can, you, can you do a, that's amazing? John is Glaswegian. No. Okay. <laughs> that's fine. I don't think it would do it justice. I'll, yeah. I'll attempt to do it. That's amazing. But that's kind of what he sounds like. And uh, he was like, that's incredible. I've not played video games for so long. And, and it just looks so real. It could be Keanu Reeves looks like he's acting with a camera. And, uh, and, and it is a point. You know, Games are so much more realistic in the way that we look at them. But actually, as technology becomes more complicated, it's not just how pretty a game is that's changing. It's also the things that we can do with them. So in this panel, we're going to look not just at the visual changing nature of uh, games as they become more cinematic, but also the, the different, the underbelly of them and how game design can evolve and change. So to kick off, I've got a bit of a, a question for our panelists. Um, starting with Joanna, what is the best bit of cinematography that you can ever think of in a game so far that you've experienced? In a game? I am a big fan of the new God of War. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy the cinematography and how they pull just all the characters together in a really, really nice way, and it immerses you super well. Mm. That's one of my favorites now. And what about from a film? Like, has there ever been a scene in a film that's inspired a game that you worked on? Um, I don't really direct, uh, but I get really inspired by a lot of movies. Mm. And for me, The Grand Budapest Hotel by Wes Anderson is one of my all-time favorites when it comes to cinematography. Yes. I just feel so immersed. And you know how sometimes you watch a movie and your mind wanders a bit mm. because you're not that immersed? This is like the complete opposite to me. I just like sit there for my two hours and I can't get out of it. Yeah, and there was so much of that. So Johanna worked on Horizon Zero Dawn and those were the games that are made at Gorilla. And you can totally see though, you know, the, the cinematics that you guys created, you, you never felt like, it didn't matter how long they were, you were always sort of immersed in, and ready to kind of like watch the rest. Um, John, what about you? What sort of films have inspired the games that you've worked on? Um, uh, quite a few different things, like um, for the most recent stuff, like Observation, it was um, a lot of found footage type movies. Um, your Blair Witch and, and uh, Paranormal Activity, you know, stuff like that. Not films that I normally watch that much, but for the type of setting that we were doing, they were like, that was a reference point. Um, but on top of that, I think like in general, things like um, uh, Children of Men had a lot of long shots that kind of feel quite similar to what we do in games. And I guess with, like God of War as well was like one big take um, that kind of, there's a lot to learn from that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a really recent phenomenon as well, having those long takes in games. Yeah. It's kind of like, I mean, Hellblade was one of the first and then God of War. It's only really in the last couple of years. What about you, Jack? What films have inspired you? 
Uh, Film-wise, the one that comes to mind is actually very early on when I was starting to think about this idea of being able to interact with filmed objects, but in a game was um, this film Django Unchained. Yes. And uh, <laughs> which you wouldn't necessarily think of, but there's a scene where um, Django and the other guy, I forget his name, were at like a <clears throat> dinner table at this, um, essentially like a, like a slave farm or something, and they bring out um, Django's wife, but they're, they're undercover, they're not supposed to know each other. And essentially, the guy who runs the place is being really unfair to, to his wife. And they cuts under the table, and Django's got like a gun in his holster. And <clears throat> he has to keep his cool, because if he just goes around shooting, they'll, they'll just all die. But like, he, he gets, you can see the anger growing in him, and he keeps very slowly pulling it out of his um, holster. Mm -hmm. And then someone else comes in a room, and he puts it back in. And I was just thinking about the fact that game mechanics aren't really um, about those small details usually. It's about usually traversing and walking around the place. Yeah. And I like the idea that if you can say something with actions that's louder than words, um, that would be a nice example where, you know, are you gonna, you can kind of, using a tactile sort of swipey mechanic, mm. sort of start pulling, say, a gun out of a holster as you've decided that you're just gonna let everything break loose, or you can kind of, basically allowing you to kind of interact with it in a way that shows you're, you're allowed to kind of embody your hesitation in it sort of thing. So that was one that, that, that came to mind. And I've, I've not really um, uh, gotten used to like t accepting any positive criticism of uh, Erica yet, but like the best line we've had in a review so far was a Polygon one that said that it looks like if Wes Anderson directed a Silent Hill film. Oh, which, nice. <laughs> if you watch a trailer, you'll realize that's a huge, uh, you know, overstatement. Yeah. It was no. my jam. Yeah. <laughs> but it was interesting what you were saying about um, how films do this really good job of, of those small moments in storytelling and being able to really tell a story through like um, a single movement of a character or sort of like their body. I, um, I did an interview with Charlize Theron for Atomic Blonde, and in that movie, there's a lot of action and actually not a lot of dialogue. And she has this background in ballet. And one of the things that she said, with movies, and particularly action movies, there's so much storytelling you can do through like, the way that a character fights. But we can also do that in video games just by looking at the way that, say, you animate a particular character and how they, they move or like, sync their fighting styles together. Did you think about that a lot in Horizon Zero Dawn when you were kind of... Oh yeah, definitely. You want kind of the dynamic of the characters, but it also comes down to what type of camera shots you want. Mm -hmm. and how you want to portray a scene, mm -hmm. uh, where you want, to, you want to look at what shots do we want, what type of cameras, do you want to go for handheld cameras here to get a more like running, running around like dynamic feeling or super realistic slow shots and it's very much down to that. We go for usually quite realistic stuff of course mm -hmm. also with our animations we want it to feel realistic but still dynamic and action filled. Yeah, because that's tricky, the realism oh, yeah. <laughs> versus non-realism. Because we often play video games for escapism and, and to, not have, to not be bound by reality. I mean, it's, it's tricky to strike that balance, right? Oh, yeah. You also don't want to get into an uncanny valley where you're like feeling like, oh, it feels really realistic, but it's, something is off. Yeah. And that's very difficult to, to get there. And there's a lot of just iterating on top of it over yeah. and over again. And it used to happen more when games technology was, uh, I guess, more nascent. And as, the, as years have gone on, the gap between filmmaking and game making has sort of closed. Um, 
I guess, how has the relationship between the two, between filmmaking and game making, changed over the years? So much. Like, <laughs> I love the interactive movies that are now coming up, like Erica and, and others, and just seeing how we're getting slowly closer to games in movies, mm. and how maybe the audience who wouldn't consider video games or playing video games first, maybe we'll try an interactive movie or something more like that and get kind of introduced to the game world because it's not that far off. It's all media. Uh, and uh, I think that's super cool. Yeah. It's like my jam. <laughs> yeah. Who here watched uh, Bandersnatch on Netflix? <laughs> yeah, like, like so many hands in the audience. And, and there were so many people, weren't there, who had never experienced that sort of idea before. And then were like, wow, there's this whole new way to tell stories. Yeah, it's also that you have the technology when it comes to like TV, you can use your remote to actually do it. It's something that you have in your home. You don't have to get a PlayStation or a PC to be able to play it, but you can do yeah. it with so many others or with your phone. It just gets easier and more accessible to a larger Absolutely. audience. And especially as we move towards gaming in the cloud, like, you know, it's almost like the end of consoles and you now will really truly be able to play a really high quality AAA style console game, but on your phone. Um, John, how do you think that the relationship between video games and filmmaking has changed over the years? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we're starting to learn from each other a bit more um, and, you know, they've been very separate in the past and now that, yeah, the technology is there to, to make things that are more engaging and more, um, yes, more cinematic, literally, um, we're, we're able to kind of bridge that gap a lot more often. And so we're starting to like even hiring people from each other's industries, which is kind of an interesting point, you know, whether it's, you know, when I worked on Alien, we hired a, a lighting artist who had come from film and had very little experience in engine programming or lighting within an engine but he brought a wealth of knowledge from the film industry and it showed in the game you know it was, it was a it was a marked improvement and and I think there's there's lots more uh, smaller steps you can take now it used to be a much bigger leap between the two but now there's you know there's everything in between it's like you know with things like um, Bandersnatch you know in the past if you wanted to if you were someone who liked films and you wanted and you were interested in games in some way it was a big leap to get there it was like they're a completely different thing. Now there's Bandersnatch, which can be compared to things like, um, you know, Detroit Become Human, stuff like that, where you've got branching narrative stuff, which can then lead you into more action-oriented games, which can then take you to an end of a spectrum you previously hadn't considered in smaller steps. And I think that's a, a big factor that we just didn't have a few years ago. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's fascinating that you said that you brought someone in from uh, the film world for Alien Isolation. Like, what, what were some of the learnings, like specifically, that, that, light, that he brought from his experience in film doing lighting to Alien Isolation? What did you learn from him? Um, I think a, a lot of it is that when, I mean, I think it goes for, it's different for, for different people, but I, I feel a lot of people who kind of um, begin their career in games learn a lot of the technical aspect of those kind of things, and they learn about the limitations of an engine or the limitations of a lighting system that you've got and sometimes you play within those boundaries too often and you don't push them you don't because you know what it's capable of and so you know I, I've did, certainly done it myself where I kind of know that the system's not going to handle this thing easily so I just avoid it yeah. and not do it when what I could have done was push for it and then push to make that tool better or make that system better and what we found from uh, from from this guy in particular Ben he, he kind of brought knowledge that he was kind of like, well, I know how this stuff is lit on set. 
I know how I would do this for real. I know the creative reasons why we do this, this, this and that. Mm. Um, and you compare that with the engine programming team who are like, this is how light behaves and this is how we're going to make it work. And he was going to go, yeah, but we don't have to do that. You know, it doesn't have to be a realistic simulation of light. It needs to be a creative simulation of light. And it totally changed how we approached how we lit environments. But then in the same way, he had to learn a lot from game design, which was in games, you can look the other way. You don't have to look where the camera's facing. You know, you don't have the luxury of lighting a shot perfectly. Mm. Where, you know, just outside that frame on a film, it's a mess. You know, there's light everywhere. There's flags everywhere. There's, you know, there's a camera crew, you know, and in the game, you can turn around and look the other way and it's still got to look good. And that's, you know, where things start to change. And so, yeah, there was definitely like learning from both sides. Um, but yeah, it was a fascinating process. No, it's, it's really interesting. Nintendo make a real point of hiring people who are non-gamers because, and you can see it in Nintendo's game design because uh, they're not constrained by the rules that we learn as gamers that, you know, red barrel means it's explodable. And then that's actually, that's it can be quite lazy from like a game design perspective. Then actually someone who's a non-gamer comes in and has no idea what they're doing. And by bringing people in from outside of games, we stop it, I guess game design being so incestuous, right? Yeah. Have, do, have you guys at the studios that you've worked at also found, you know, sort of non-gamers being hired into the studio? Well, we've had a lot of crossover with film and games, as you can imagine, and um, I think the whole, all, the whole kind of motivation behind the design as well was very much like we've been used to the same mechanics for 30 years in terms of we're at the point where we don't even tutorialise analogue sticks anymore because we just assume we know the left ones move and the right ones look. Um, and there's so many sort of conventions that we build upon that we just accept and we don't realise that there's that huge barrier to entry and that neophobia about games. Like Charlie Brooker said 10 years ago that gamers somehow have this sixth sick sense for knowing which doors you can walk through and which ones are painted on. And, but like anyone else, once you establish a door can be opened, you're like, why aren't all doors able to open, you know? Um, so there's, there's that sense. So while, rather than like it just being specifically about non-gamers we hire in, it's more non-gamers we try and talk to, talk to games about or try and get them to play our game and realise that there's there's just these certain conventions that we're sort of leaning back on that that they wouldn't know. Um, and then I guess when it comes to like the convergence of those two things, you look at something like Bandersnatch, it very, feels very much like it's in the film camp that has mm -hmm. some game mechanics. Mm -hmm. I think our goal was to try and make a game that happened to be filmed and when we were, you know, approaching the idea of how do you build a structure from, or, or a workflow from writing a design, pre-production into then a filmmaking environment and then back out into a games-making environment. You're used to the culture of games being that every single game is completely reinventing stuff from scratch, you know, it's like it's new technical challenges, new creative challenges, because the publisher is like, what are the five unique selling points that are gonna sell me this? Whereas in filmmaking, it, it lives and dies on did an executive like reading your script? And then when it comes to the shoot, it's the same practice for 100 years of filmmaking mm. because it's mostly all freelancers, so they need to have that similar language. And if someone doesn't work well within that system, then they're probably not going to get a call for the next gig. Um, but then having said that, with, with Erica, we started talking to people who felt like the very first generation of filmmakers who were growing up at the time where games were as relevant a medium to them as anything else. And so like our live action director, Jamie Stone, I could just effortlessly talk to him about Inside, like one of my favorite games ever, and, and all these games. And he was someone who, he wasn't just like looking at a game and saying, okay, I see what they're doing there. He, he's, had, he's been touched by a game experience, and I think that was the difference 
Whereas we talk to other people and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, those movie games, they're, they're really big, kids love that shit, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hasn't had that moment in the same way that they had the moment in their, their primary art form. So maybe that is one of the ways that really the relationship between film and games has changed, more that both sides now sort of respect the other in a way that perhaps back in the day, games were sort of seen as the thing sort of snapping at people's heels, right? It's, it's, um, it's a slow process. And there's like a, I found it's more like a handful of, of people I found on the film side who feel like that, that way, but there is still that big stigma mm. about it. You know, or they'll throw buzzwords at you like VR, you know, and yeah. Uh, assume that, yeah, that's all they need to say, sort of thing. And actually, we went, I was talking at a uh, London Screenwriters Festival, and people were coming up and saying, um, yeah, how do I end up writing for games? Because it sounds like a quick buck. Um, and it was very much like you wouldn't walk into a theatre, you wouldn't write a movie if I haven't walked into a movie theatre, like a rich mix. Uh, so why would you write for a game if you haven't played one, been moved by one, you know? Mm. So um, it's 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 there, but it's getting there, mm. uh, and uh, it's just I guess I guess it's trying to hope that you get something that that is as deep and rich as as your games, mm. um, but with the mainstream appeal of Bandersnatch, yeah. But I think that's key. I think all three of your most recent games, all of you have created really rich worlds that are played in different ways, and the ways that you engage with them are different. But the worlds themselves are so rich, so cinematic, such great stories. Um, like, what are the, some of the key differences between making an engaging world in a game versus making an engaging world in a film? Well, for us, for example, for Horizon Zero Dawn, you, your world wasn't just your cinematic experience. Mm. We had to share it with gameplay and everything else that was going on to the world. It was an open world, it had to say, fit in memory, it had to perform. You had to have amazing gameplay at the same time and all of these things, which is just so many technical limitations that you have to get over to then create your super immersive cinematic experience on top of that. So you, there's just so many more departments and people and things to think about at the same time and then just getting it all together to what you actually want in yeah. the end. Yeah, and I think one of the things that you know, in terms of building those worlds and reviewing the information is that the player can discover that stuff at their own pace and in their own mm -hmm. way and potentially in their own order, um, which is not something films have to worry about. They, they precisely know when to deliver each bit of information to the player and, you know, how much do you need to know for a plot point to make sense. Mm -hmm. In a game, you might miss that entirely or uh, you might find that out after the fact. And, um, you know, in, in Observation, you've got some you've got some free reign. It's, I wouldn't call it an open world, but it's, it's got moments where you've got a bit of freedom to kind of explore. And there's lots and lots of detail and there's lots of time and money and effort being spent on making this world, uh, you know, uh, feel lived in and feel like a real place and you can learn a lot about the characters, but players might just skip that. They might not mm -hmm. take any of that in. Um, it might just provide the sense that this is a lived in place and that's all they get from it. And if that's all they need, then maybe that's okay. But You've got to make sure the depth's there for the people who want to um, dig deeper. Otherwise, it ends up being the, the kind of the cardboard set. You know, you've got to be very aware of that. That some of that some of that time and effort's going to go unseen, but you've got to it's got to be there. You know. Is that frustrating though? When you've yes. just got and you've made a scene <laughs> and you've spent months making, and then and then just someone's like turn the other way and they don't see that glorious thing yeah. that you've created. That must be frustrating. It is, yeah. When, when the game, well, I know when, when our games come out, we, 
we tend to watch a lot of the streams that, that come from on day one sort of thing with, with mixed results. Sometimes it's like, it's amazing and you know, a scene or a sequence might land really well and they, you know, they get a, a shock or a surprise or, or something exciting happens and they, they get it and it locks in perfectly and you kind of stuck the landing and it's great. Other times, you know, um, you, you'll see it go the wrong way. And um, there was one, uh, the comedian Lemmy uh, played Observation and absolutely hated it. Um, he loved Stories Untold, their previous game, and he just he just did not get on with it. And one of the things he was doing was whenever he would finish a bit of a of a mission, and he would maybe struggle to get there, like he would he would kind of struggle to get to the point, or he'd miss a clue or something like that. When he eventually got to the the kind of the ending of that section, you would get some cinematic, you'd get some story, and that's where it would explain what you're about to do next. But at that point, he'd start talking to streamers and going, oh, that was really frustrating. <laughs> and then when he finished his kind of rant about that, he'd go, right, what am I doing? <laughs> and then be lost, and you're just sitting going, oh my God. You know? And so it's kind of hard to watch that stuff not, not land really well, yeah. but it happens. I mean, it happens in films, it happens in TV. It's always the same. People might just miss that vital line of dialogue or yeah. you know, go to the toilet halfway through a film at the cinema and miss a vital, you know, pivotal scene. And the same goes for your world-building world stuff. You know, the motivations for some of the characters and observation for why they do what they do are mm. sometimes are obvious and sometimes they're hidden in documents or audio mm. reports and things like that. And if they don't see any of that stuff, it can feel a bit flat. Yeah. But you've got to play for, I think you've got to play to the people that you know are going to get the most out of it um, and hope that other people can kind of join along for that ride. Sure. I mean, are, are there tricks that you guys use to make sure that people are swinging the camera around and, and seeing the key story moments and things? Like, what, what do you guys do to try and direct the player? In our case, we're, <laughs> we, are, we are, well, yeah, spotlight definitely in warm and cool lighting and, and all yeah. of that. And there's a lot of sort of level design tricks. In our case, it was a film, so we had the advantage of just doing what filmmakers do, which yes. is, this is my camera, I'm putting it here. Mm. But at the same time, we wanted people to be able to have a, a feeling of being able to explore and see, and see different mm. things, which ends up having kind of similar problems, because we were kind of experimenting quite a lot of Erica, because we thought this might be our first and last game, so let's just go and do everything we're curious about. And by making a story that was um, quite meaningfully branching, which is also something that's really hard to telegraph if you're not having these big and notifications come up, which we didn't want to do. Um, it meant that people might get to the end and then have kind of miss quite a few important details that would give you that traditional cinema resolve. Mm. And um, we were talking about uh, Punch Drunk earlier yeah. um, upstairs, and, and I recommended that to a ton of people. Well, this, these immersive theatre shows where you can go 20 different ways and find all these different stories. And every once in a while, someone I've told to go will come back and say, oh, I didn't enjoy it. And they just kind of had what they call like a bad run, mm -hmm. where they just were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Every room they went into, an actor had just left, you know, and you can't. And that's that sense of how do you um, strike the balance between genuine freedom and, uh, and a sort of a simulated world versus, okay, I'm going to freeze everything in that room until someone goes in there. Mm -hmm. And with us, with Erica, because of that, Immersive theatre inspiration, we were very much like, if you play the game three or four times, you'll see that this scene was always happening, whether you were there or not, or depending what, what room door you came in from, or what time you went in there, at, or, or based on what your relationship was with those people. So yeah, that's between. Yeah, mm. I mean, I guess with, 
you know, the games that Gorilla make and then Horizon Zero Dawn, you had the complete opposite experience to Jack in that it's, it's totally open world, you know, the player can go wherever they want. And you do try and, I guess, funnel the player, you know, you start in a smaller area. Kind of try, yeah. We have a smaller area in the beginning just to kind of get the player into this is the type of gameplay, this is just teaching the player what to do. But after that, it's like a free-for-all. Yeah. <laughs> just go out and do things. But uh, yeah, you kind of want... We have a lot of different side quests that have their own story arches, but then the main quest that we try to encourage the player to do. But then, mm. yeah, just just like um, uh, John said, we have like um, uh, audio logs or other things that if you want to go like really, really deep into it, some players do. And they will listen to all of the audio logs, they will read all of the details yeah. and see like uh, th these all kinds of layers of the story. But then you have the people that just go through and skip all cinematics. Uh, and of course, then the story makes a little bit less sense. Then the robot dinosaur sounds like just robot dinosaurs, you know? Which is uh, still fine. Which is still fine, I, I agree. I love robot dinosaurs, I think it's great. But, but some people find it like, oh, that's yeah. a bit confusing. Um, but yeah, we try to lead a player, but it's, it's difficult. Or it could be that you have uh, quests that are branching or interchanging, and you have to make sure that, oh, if you have done this quest over here, this thing over here needs to change, or this cutscene needs to be different, and you need to have a different end to this cutscene, because the player did another choice uh, 20 hours ago. And it's a lot of just design work to get through all of that and make sure that it all makes some kind of sense in the end, and that the story is still the same, but just displayed in a different way depending on how the player chooses to play. Sounds like such a headache. <laughs> it's work. Yes, yes, that is the job. Um, no, I mean, Jack, it's really interesting what you were saying earlier about how you essentially, whereas Bandersnatch was very much a sort of TV thing first with a bit of game, what you were trying to do with Erica was create a game that has a bit of TV. I kind of want to drill down into that a little bit more. What, what was your starting point, I guess, with? Um, we knew we wanted to make a narrative game, yeah. and we didn't have any artists. So uh, I, I I'd I'd went to film school before and worked in film a little bit. So I was like, okay, I know these two mediums, and I just had never felt that it had ever worked before, like the whole film and games mm -hmm. thing. Um, and it's up to debate whether Erica did as well, but I feel fairly proud, and I feel like we got closer um, in that our big thing was I games are like a lean forward experience, whereas Watching a film is like a lean back experience. Well, that's a good way to put it. And uh, if I'm playing, I'm like constantly on. Like I'm on, I'm on, I'm on. Um, but like if I play like a traditional FV game, I press a button. It's not in the world. It's like a flat button on top of the screen. So I'm already taken out of it. Um, I press the button and I'm watching for five minutes. And grab my prosecco. I don't know why I'm drinking prosecco. <laughs> the life of a game. My phone. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? It's, it's because I'm, it's because the image I have in my head is when I would like test games out with my mum. And she'd be like, it'd be like right. an evening, she's winding down, she has a Prosecco. Your mum sounds like and, a legend. <laughs> and, uh, and then I'm trying to get her to play some game, and then she's been told to lean forward again, and suddenly she can't be asked. It's like, oh my god, it's tedious. And it's like working. And, and she's like, why am I just watching TV at this point? And so we, I had this rule, like we needed this rhythm of interacting within like 15 to 20 seconds, for better or for worse almost, you know, just to keep people in this state of mind where they leaning more forward than back, you know, mm -hmm. at least philosophically. Um, 
and uh, and then off of that I started thinking about traditional narrative games and forgetting the fact it was live action. Just being like, if this wasn't live action, what would I do with the gameplay? So one of those things was, again, looking at other stuff that someone like my mum, my dad, my sister would find weird about games, such as traversal, that it's easier to walk around for most people in real life and to open a door than it is in a game where you're bumping into scenery and suddenly it's like a Hadouken thing to open a door. And it's like, you know, like, for, for us, we started prototyping initially on the phone. We were like, everyone's got a phone in their pocket. It's the most intimate device you have. Um, if I saw like a Zippo lighter on my phone, which is the very first thing that happens in Erica, uh, based off how I know how hinges work in the real world and how a phone works, I should be able to work out how to do this by building on my model of the real world rather than game conventions. Same with a door handle. Um, so it was kind of trying to take all these little narrative things then saying, okay, rather than making it about running and jumping and shooting all these external conflicts, can we make it about internal conflicts? Mm -hmm. Because that might be that, because, because that, that's kind of like what 99% of our games are built on and they're brilliant, it means some people would just assume, okay, if that's a high barrier to entry, that's not really for me. Well, like, can we trick them with something simpler so that then they can go from that to a more complex open world game and, and sort of, wean people onto games, mm. you know, and to get rid of that neophobia. And so the last point of that was live action because I tried to get my mum to play in a very emotional scene in a very successful video game and she couldn't connect to it because she just didn't think it looked real. Oh, and she, I, I, I was like, it, I was like, but you've seen a Pixar movie, right? But it occurred to me that like, basically, most people's assumption of uh, CGI films are family films. You know, like that sort mm. of softness complements the, the story. Mm. Um, you know, there's very few examples of like mainstream feature length live action, uh, sorry, CGI films that are kind of more mature stories. Yeah. You know? And so live action ended up being one of the, uh, the other solutions to this problem, trying to onboard people into games. Uh, and then after that, we were like, okay, now, it's, now these new customers are for everyone because you know, <laughs> uh, that was the theory anyway. Mm. No, it's also like the uncanny valley of saying, I think Pixar, you know, they're very hyper-stylized, and mm. so you can kind of suspend your disbelief. But if you're playing a game that is more realistic CGI, but just not quite there, it can be harder for people to connect. You guys, though, you had PlayStations on set. Is that right? Am I, is, is that true? Uh, that, you know, you really combined that world while you were shooting? Oh, yeah. Like, um, it was very much like there's um, the, the film crew, and there's the film director, and then... I'm there whispering in the film director's ear, just being like, I want you to have creative freedom and be the one running the show, but I need to stop you when you're doing something that isn't going to serve my game. You know, like a certain, like we were very much like, we have uh, rules of what kind of shots we can use, you know, like I don't think we have a close up in the game that isn't an interaction. So after a while, people just get into this rhythm when they see a close up, they're just like, oh, okay, I feel like I can interact now and vice versa, like we don't really show wide shots of Erica because when I see a wide shot in a movie, um, that makes me feel like I'm objectifying the character. And with this, we're very much like you are sort of the voice of reason, the conscience of this character. So there's little rules like that. Um, and so that culture of like, okay, the game is the top of the hierarchy in this film set uh, was very important so much so that we had those PlayStations on set so that people could be playing their work a day later. Mm. Um, so like, 
the pulling open the rib and people could literally get their PlayStation controller or their phone and go Ooh, and be like, oh, okay, I see what we're doing here. It clicks. Otherwise, it's this very abstract thing. Everyone's like, we're here for some movie game VR thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because we're trying not to disrupt the film set, even though we kind of have to in many ways. So we're like, the less we can do it, the better. So let them just do things they know how to do um, that they're really talented at. But then we're like, well, you know, in a coffee break, are you curious to see what we're doing? And mm. that actually made everyone more hungry in terms of, not, not in terms of they were literally hungry, we fed them. We fed them twice a day. But, um, but like, uh, you know, hungry to make it work. They really felt like it wasn't gimmicky. They didn't feel like it was another, um, yeah, just sort of cash grab sort mm -hmm. of thing. Um, so they had a PlayStation being there, these dev kits were, were very good for them. It's an interesting process. I've, I've not heard of it before, of, you know, literally having PlayStations on set and going from filmmaking and having a game maker sort of mm. speaking to a game director, how that flowed is, is really fascinating. Well, this is the problem we were kind of having to like, because we were young and stupid, we were like, okay, let's, let's try and do things that hadn't been solved before, which meant that you end up, you know, making tons and tons of mistakes, mm. some of which you, you never fix, but like the ambition there is, 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 yeah, to try and do something new. And in our case, no one had ever really cracked that. So. Mm. It's a lot of trial and error, but we did have like prototype shoots before the real shoot, okay. so we were kind of learning on the cheap, as it were. Sometimes mm -hmm. not on the cheap, but well, it's yeah. a smart way of basically piloting the shoot. Yeah. Um, I mean, John, everyone at No Code, you, you have a lot of cinematic elements, particularly in your opening title sequences, and yep. it's it's something that we see in TV and film all the time, and we really accept, but we don't see that a lot in video games. In fact, people actively, the credits either come at the end or they're a thing that you have to access through the menu. Like, why do you guys have opening title sequences? Um, I'm a bit of a geek for them, first and foremost. Um, I, I don't know, I think it's something that, I think there's a lot you learn from the show you're about to watch or the, uh, or, or the game you're about to play from the title sequence, if, if it's done well. Um, the, without spoiling much for those who haven't played it, the majority of the kind of story concept of observation is in that video about what's actually happening, you know, and, and the answer that a lot of people, or the question a lot of people have at the end or near the end of the game is actually kind of answered there if you, you know, if you think about it enough, you kind of like, it starts to make sense. Um, and it's about, Credit sequences do this amazing job of setting the expectations of what's going to come next without revealing anything. They get you excited about it. Um, and, and the first job that I had in games, uh, which was not a cinematic game in any way, really, uh, I wanted to put a title sequence in, and they were kind of like, why? Like, this is an action MMO. Why do you want to put a title sequence <laughs> in? Like, because it's cool. Um, and I, I just really wanted to get in because I, I, I figured it would help give some context to the stuff that you were doing um, where there was a bit of a lack of it. So in, in that game in particular, the, the stories were all delivered just through either text or very generic dialogue. Um, you didn't get, there was no cinematics throughout the game at all. And that's one of the things I felt it was lacking was this like a reason to do anything. And so I made this credit sequence, which was uh, it's kind of like news footage. It had all been cut together um, about what happened in the city before you kind of start playing. And it went down really well, and everyone was really surprised. And at the beginning, we're kind of like, "Why are we getting? Why is John doing a credit sequence for the game? Like, what's wrong with him?" Um, and then when it, when we delivered it, it was like people started to understand the difference it made, and it was all about that expectation. And the the kind of first few seconds of playing any game are pivotal. Like, mm. 
you know, a lot of people probably get bored of publisher logos coming up at the start um, and the, the 20, 30 second wait while you wait to start the game for all these logos coming in. Um, and I really believe that the quality of those logos as kind of out of the game as it might seem, mm. helps set your expectation of the quality, of the tone, of the, the look, the feel. Um, when you get into that main menu, you know, main menus are often neglected, but make a massive difference to when you hit start, that the first thing you saw was cool. It's really important for that to happen. It's like, I think you say it with, um, with music, with, with a good album, it's like as long as the first track and the last track are really good, you'll think the whole thing was good. Um, and you kind of ignore the filler a little bit. The first thing you see, the last thing you see, that has the big impact. So you got a good beginning and a good ending, you're, you're halfway there, right? You've, you've got something good. And I think your main menu um, has a big part to play in that. Your kind of onboarding experience in terms of like your opening chapter of the game and how it plays and how you introduce people is obviously extremely important to make sure that people want to keep playing. And so what we did for, for uh, Observation was have that come in about maybe 20, 30 minutes in, you'd played the first chapter, you had the first big reveal, so it was kind of like the cold open, and then put this credit sequence in, which kind of comes out of the blue and no one's really expecting it. But afterwards, you know, it's like the same with the lean-in thing, they're all like, okay, you know, they're, they're invested now, they've had this kind of, the first chapter ends with a bit of a kind of cliffhanger-y, almost TV episode kind of feel to it, where you're like, wait, what does that mean? Yeah. And then you get this thing, this, this kind of bizarre, um, uh, credit sequence with some Nine Inch Nails soundtrack behind mm -hmm. it, and people are invested in, it and they kind of sets expectations like it's all this kind of code and you know evolving structures that are all dark red with this menacing music, and it's kind of like uh, you, in the game you play as the AI, and this is a kind of example of the AI starting to evolve, and you think, well, am I the bad guy? And that sequence kind of sets that question up without us ever having to say it. You know, we don't have to have to spell that out like you're untrustworthy, you're. A, Unreliable narrator, but the credit sequence gets to do that for us. Um, no, and then, it's, it's, sorry. Yeah, and in, in the previous game, Stories Untold, um, it's, there's four episodes of, of a TV, a fictional TV show, and we have the same uh, credit sequence at the start of each one, and it repeats. And it seems really, like, it seems really annoying that you have to watch this thing. It's like 40, 50 seconds long every time. But in the fourth episode, we stop it halfway, and the credit sequence becomes part of the story. And we set up an expectation and then break that and have a lot of fun with it. And it's just by playing on what people's expectations are of credit sequences and why they're there and stuff like that. Uh, which is why I got really annoyed and upset when Netflix added a skip intro button. <laughs> skip cutscenes, like... And occasionally I'll see like someone in my family reach for it and I'm like, don't you? <laughs> watch, not in this house. We watch the Westworld title every time, whether you like it or not. Yeah. So it's, like, it's a really good title. Yeah. Nice. But that is interesting, the skip function. Like, you know, um, I mean, I, I guess in games you can also be very creative with title sequences. One of the ones that springs to mind is uh, Prey, if you guys mm -hmm. have played it. I think, as I remember, it's a while since I played it, but I'm pretty sure at the beginning, when you're in that helicopter sequence, like on the horizon, you see sort of like names that are sort of like put into the game world. So you are still active in the credit sequence but it's like the names appear in the skyline or on a building, which is quite an interesting way of doing things. There's kind of ways that you can still engage with the idea of a credit sequence in yeah. a game. And I, yeah, and I think one of the things that we kind of forget is to you know, pay tribute to the people who made the game as well. And it's why they were there in the first place was to kind of like, yeah. you know, uh, I take in a lot of issue with games companies just being defined by a single brand and none of the personalities get to show themselves and people don't get to talk about the work they've done and, and get kind of credited for it publicly. And 
um, putting credits at the start and letting people know who's who's made this thing that you're either enjoying or about to enjoy is, is kind of important, you know, to kind of pay respect to the people who have actually done the work, you know. Absolutely. Um, let's drill down into the ideas of cinematics, because that's probably sort of one of the most obvious crossovers between, you know, film and games. I mean, uh, in, in cinema, once you've shot something, it's, it's pretty hard to change, right? You can kind of go in with CGI and, and go over it, but it's, it's pretty much there. In games, there's a lot more fluidity, and you were touching earlier on it, Ioana, when you were talking about how your crit is cinematic and maybe like a character has changed. How, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with creating a cinematic where actually the, each player going into it might have had a slightly different experience before that affects that cinematic? There's so much to think about at all times yeah. because for example, in Horizon Zero Dawn, you can change the player character's clothing or like armor, and then in the cinematic, you want her to look the same. Mm -hmm. There's different ways for, for other games or for other scenarios. You can do what we would call a pre-render, which is when you render down a movie of a cinematic beforehand, so you don't have to think of performance or other things that are happening in game, and then you play that back in game. But that's not always possible if you have, well, different costumes, you might not even have disk space for this actual movie. And there are so many technical limitations to that. So yeah, you kind of have to just play it out in game. But yeah, there's many things to think about. And just having the world being the same state, say that the world can actually change states, you want that to be displayed in the cinematic as well. Nice. And like, what's, I guess, the timeline on a single cinematic? Um, I can't give you any like direct timeline because mm. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but it, for a while, it's like a continuous progress. This mm -hmm. goes pretty quickly into game, uh, but then it's going to be in a state like this in game. Uh, and then it starts getting polished, and it goes to different people, it goes back and forth, and it's a really interactive, longer process where it just goes back and forth until release. Nice. Technically, that just must be insane to create. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of fun work. It's yeah. what, what I love to do. But yeah, it's a, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of teams coming together because you have the lighting artists. You have, well, of course, it starts with the writing, and then you have lighting artists, you have animators. You have so much people involved in the entire progress. Mm. You have practically all teams in the entire studio being involved in making a single cinematic, mm. which is also super, super cool. I mean, how do you optimize performance in all of that amongst, amongst A lot. Teams? Yeah. <laughs> it's, but the thing is, it's not only code. Of course, I'm a programmer, so that's yeah. the most I do is just like making sure that it actually runs reasonably. But there comes a point where you can't optimize your code that much more. And then you have a lot of tricks that you have to do. For example, you can hide characters that are not in shot. So you just don't, those people are not there. You can use depth of field in really, really smart ways where you have quite high depth of fields in some shots. So you don't have to render the highest level of detail in the distance because you simply can't afford it performance wise. But yeah, there's many tricks you can do with the camera angles and camera shots and just seeing what you can, can make do and still make it look great. Hmm. It's, it's, we kind of touched on it earlier about how a lot of players try to skip cutscenes in games and it's you know when you see a cutscene like that and the work that goes into it and also like what it does for the story like you know I guess what would you say the purpose is of a cutscene versus say having a player discover these things by themselves why do we have cutscenes in games when they're so there are so many purposes for it uh, it's like you can show just a narrative 
is a very standard way of doing that, but you can also show new gameplay mechanics. You can teach players things through it, or you can show conversations between characters, and you can just go really deep with it and show much more like you can pan a camera up looking over a mountain just so the player thinks, oh, maybe I can actually go there. Maybe there's something there without really telling them to, but just kind of guiding them in that general direction. Nice. Are there, are there any tricks that you do to try and make cutscenes more interesting or more engaging for players? I think one thing that you can do, it's, it's really, to me it's really important that you don't say that you have super action-filled gameplay. Mm. It's like super high adrenaline and they just cut into a slow 10-minute cutscene. And most players will be quite frustrated and feel like, oh, I want to skip this, let's go through this. So if it goes with the general flow of the gameplay, I find that super important because mm. then people are actually in the mood of being interested in looking at the cinematic yeah. and continuing to watch it. And you can do other things like you have a longer conversation between two characters, but you leave some camera control mm. so the player can still look around a bit and then it becomes suddenly much more interactive and much more interesting for the player to actually watch this conversation. Yeah, I mean, cameras are one of the clearest examples of the ways that we can outline between filmmaking and game making. I mean, you know, in, in both of, of your games, you have such interesting, uh, I guess, uh, treatments of cameras because you've got your purely full motion video game and then in your game John you're playing an AI that's you know interacting with the world through CCTV and found footage what what did you all learn in your own respective ways about films and their treatment of cameras and how did you bring it into games uh, well uh, what is the answer to this so yeah basically it was that a film has the freedom to do anything in the sense that um, that's the advantage of a, of a cutscene as well, I suppose, and that um, you know, you, you're building so many mechanics to your game, there's only so much scope you can have, and so, so you know, um, a, a cutscene alleviates the need to try and find a way to say, how can I make someone cry with a, I don't know, skidding under a dinosaur, you know, like <laughs> that's not the right use of that mechanic, you know, so you're like, okay, this gives me lots of, lots of stuff. Um, and one of the other things with films, not just the cameras and all that, but it's just the fact that they can write anything. Um, with, because the player is a part of, of every, you know, decision you need to make, when it comes to the fact that in, so in Erica, Erica will only speak if you choose for her to speak. Playing a lot of games where um, yeah, the character, the character generally in these in these branching games will say, you know, what they need to say because um, you, your character, your protagonist, has to give exposition to move the story forward. Um, and then the player gets like the odd, the odd choice every once in a while to make them feel involved. Um, and because we were feeling, you know, uh, unnecessarily contrarian, we were like, what what if the player had to say every single line? And then we realised why because the most powerful tool a writer has sometimes is their protagonist giving exposition. And so when you take that away, it makes it a nightmare to, to, to write. And mm. we found out firsthand. And so early on when we were exploring Erica and other games with different writers, we were, they were like, okay, they would deliver something in that would be a great film script. And then we're like, okay, you can't do that because it's a game and not only a game, but we're trying to do a lot of different things with it. Uh, and we realised just what a task that was, and the same, the exact same things for cameras. You know, you can put mm -hmm. a camera anywhere, um, 
but if we want to give, it's, it's like a real balance of like functionality and tastefulness. So uh, you, you want to do a wide shot so you can show everything in the room, but then you don't want it to look fat and cold and stuff. And you know, prop people are used to putting all these interesting props in the scenery, which you're never going to see too up close. You know, they're just like books that look looks like a rack of books, but actually there's nothing behind them. They're not real books or something like that. But we wanted the player to be able to click on anything that they found curious or interesting. And so suddenly we had to take away those unnecessary details, but at the same time we didn't want the sets to look too barren. Um, so it was an awful lot of um, being envious of the simplicity of this sort of the, the linearity of film. Yeah. Even being a sound designer in the past, I found like doing sound for a cutscene was so much more of a relief than doing sound for like the gameplay elements where you have no idea what the player's going to do next. Yeah. And so you have to make sure it all mixes together. Um, yeah, that's yeah. what I found is just a lot of envy for <laughs> no, clarity. <laughs> you yeah. have such an easier job, those <laughs> filmmakers. I mean, uh, do you have any tips for really effective camera placements in your cinematics that you found, Joanna? I find it's uh, really important to go with the mood. Like, what mood do you actually want to convey with the cameras? And what type of cameras do you want to use? Do you want to use full, just realistic lenses? Mm. Do you want to use handheld cameras? There's so much that go into just the choice of cameras and the choice of lenses. And mm. pinning that down first will give you an overall the same cinematic experience. And I think that's really important to have a coherent experience in it all. And that would be my, my tip. That's really interesting, the choice of lenses, because we, we don't, I, you know, you don't necessarily think of a video game being constrained by the idea of a lens, like, because you can surely create any, is there like virtual lenses that you use and like different effects and filters that you put in? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. That's, you can go for just recreating practically the realistic lenses you have and mm. if that's what you want to do and then you can say that you have a director that comes from film and mm. wants to use film lenses. That's what you then yeah. technically have to do to be able for them to just convey their vision in your game and you just need to be able to, to help them do that. That's something else I'm envious of because not only were we envious of linearity, we're envious of being able to work in a virtual environment gives you that freedom to play with a slide yeah. for your field of view <laughs> and then the camera and forth. We're like, we, we can only, if we had to rent lenses because we couldn't afford to buy these things. Um, and you can only afford so many lenses as well. Mm. So you're like, oh, I would have loved this certain lens at this moment, but no, we, we have one above it and one below it. And we're like, ah. And you've got to make that, that compromise. Plus, you know, for every time we're making this decision, there's like 70 filmmakers all waiting there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you have 44 days to get like 1,800 different shots and it no. takes it could take like 20, 30 minutes sometimes to set up a shot. Yeah. That sounds like a nightmare. And then once you've got it, you can't change it. So yeah. it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I really want to dive in as well to what you think, John, particularly because of your experience with CCTV. And then after that, I'm going to throw some questions to you guys. Um, so have a think if there's anything you'd like to ask the panelists. But in the meantime, your approach to cameras in a found footage style CCTV <laughs> game, I mean, that's fascinating. How yeah, did that go? It, it, yeah, it was. It was. It was fascinating. We, we. I, I'm not hugely a big fan of things like Paranormal Activity, or I, I enjoyed Blair Witch One, but I mean that's going back 20 years now or something ridiculous. I try not to think about that. Um, but the, 
it, it was a perfect fit for what we're trying to do. You know, this you're you're the AI on the station, and your only view into the world is through the cameras that are installed on the station. So, what we did to begin with, kind of similar to picking the right lens, was that we came up with a a look and a, a kind of lens type for each type of physical device that you'd be able to possess and look through. Um, so you had these cameras that were mounted on the walls, you had um, this kind of remote drone that you can pilot, it would have its own camera, and that was our limits. It was like, you're either, you know, so when it came to doing a certain particular cutscene, you would say, well, is this going to be happening from a wall camera, or is this going to happen from the sphere? If it's the sphere camera, who's holding it? Is anyone holding it? Is it just floating and, and having to work within those constraints and, and stuff like that? Um, and so, yeah, a lot of... Uh, a lot of the preparation for that kind of stuff was about studying those films and studying theatre as well to work out like how do you tell stories at a distance. Mm. You know, like when you can't guarantee that the player is going to be zoomed in on Emma when she delivers her monologue. You know, you might be in a wide shot or you might be looking the wrong way because you've got this kind of zoom and control of each camera. Mm. Um, so it's kind of like, well, how do we convey this stuff when the person who's delivering this important um, emotional moment is? 15 feet away from the camera and you can't quite see it all properly and what else do we have to do? And so there was a lot of, like, every shot was kind of like trying to consider, you know, what tool we were going to use. Like, if we really need to make sure you're up close, then we would change where that scene was taking place. Maybe mm -hmm. it's, we'll pick a camera where there's a seat right next to it or a, a computer right next to it that she can be logged in on and that way you've got a nice close-up. And so our shot choice, um, instead of picking, you know, like picking the right lens or the right, you know, shot for... Uh, for, uh, sorry, the right lens for the shot became even picking the right location for that shot based on the line of dialogue. So we'd go, well, this is a pretty emotional line. We don't want this to happen, you know, at the end of a corridor with a CCTV camera. So we're going to make sure that you're in the camera of a laptop at that point. And she can be at the laptop talking to the camera. And then if we do that, we're now limited to, okay, well, what do laptop cameras look like? You know, what kind of effects do they need to have on them? Um, you know, what kind of resolution are they? Are they digital or analog? And we would switch on or switch off the, the post effects to kind of simulate each one differently. So our sphere camera looked and felt a bit like a GoPro and the ones on the walls looked more like an analog device because they had been on the ship since day one mm -hmm. and the ship had been around for 20 years sort of thing. Uh, whereas the GoPro things were new tech and they'd been sent up and, and so like the, the, the kind of uh, in fiction um, design of these cameras played a, a role in how we chose to shot it, how we chose to shoot each scene, um, so it was a bit of a nightmare. Yes, but it was fun. But it was it was fascinating. Like it was a really interesting yeah. way to work. Um, to to have you know we we talk about the the UI in the game as well in the same way we did the cameras. What we called the cameras like method cameras, like they were always in character. Um, <laughs> and the same with the UI and stuff. Everything was method. It was like we we built a world and then used all the different elements in that to tell a story, rather than using cameras and sound and stuff in this kind of non-diegetic separated yeah. form everything was in world so as as much as possible so it basically defined what kind of decisions we could make and what options we had we've come such a long way from the resident evil of the 90s where <laughs> you have camera there as you walk down a corridor and yeah. shift there's so much more creativity and variety that Absolutely. you guys have as as game developers yeah. um, now it's your turn does anyone have any questions for our panelists yeah, we've got this guy just here. I've uh, got a mic heading towards you. So, uh, how would you handle the difference between like a first person and third person scene? Like, if you needed to transition between the two? Uh, do you mean, yeah, so if you're looking through just first person? Well, it's 
I think it's very important that you don't nauseate your player <laughs> because that's easy to do if you transition in. But it, it depends on how you want to do it. If you, it's nice to see, if you've seen the shot from the actual person uh, in the third person and then into first person, then it's easy to see that you're actually there because mm -hmm. it can be difficult to know where you've gone if you're coming from one camera or the other, that you're actually in that person's head now. So if you see some small details or like the hands or something, and then you actually know that you're now in a first person view of that camera. Cool. Any other questions? Yeah, just I would distract the chat. Uh, first of all, Joanna, um, Horizon Zero, Zero Dawn is uh, part of my CV as an actor, and I'm oh, so, amazing. it's one of my favorite credits. Um, what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Patrick Klein. Um, my question is, so far we've talked about the, uh, the way film and games uh, take from each other, in a way. Uh, we haven't talked about collaboration. And uh, there was a big buzz in France, and in, uh, mainly in France, about 10 years ago, about transmedia. And I wanted to know whether any of your companies are working towards that kind of thing, where um, the game comes complete with film, with um, telephone calls, with emails, with sort of a more immersive um, experience. Yeah, I mean, there's something we, we've talked about a lot at No Code um, about doing where we have, uh, like, observation as a, a, a game, a story that can really only be told as a game um, because of your perspective. Um, it'd be a really weird film to watch, um, a very difficult film to watch. Um, so we have that, but the, there is that other human side of the story and one of the original ideas was to potentially do a short film or something that would go with it that gave you the other side and gave you this other perspective and, and a more rounded or more complete uh, version of, of that world. Um, I think for, for us it was just about budget and about scope and your, your ability to do that, but it's something we have already started talking about for the next one is like, well, we've, again, we're the, the next game that we're starting to, to build now uh, is, I was about to say it out loud there and I can't, um, <laughs> uh, has a similar premise in that you, you know, it's a kind of, it's a game, you know, and, and it would be a story best told as a game. Um, but there's absolutely nothing stopping us developing a film property based on that or a TV show based on that. And we're now, now that we've started to build a bit of a, a reputation for the studio and our, our way that we tell stories, we've now got more contacts and we can actually explore that with more um, more chance of it actually happening now. So yeah, for the next thing is, is more like, well, okay, we're going to make a game. We're all, we're all committed to that, but why is it just limited to that? Why, why can't we branch out from there? Why isn't there a tie-in novel and a, you know, and, and stuff that isn't just a retelling of the same thing? You know, it's not just a novelization of, of observation. It's a, you know, it's a, a different story that's taking place or a side, a side story or give you some other perspective. And I think that's, yeah, it's, it's I don't know whether like films have done this for a long time, where you've had you know you've had comics, you've had game tie-ins, you've had all sorts coming from one side. And it's just the the origin point has always been the film. Mm. Um, whereas now it's like now we're starting to entertain the idea of the origin point being the game, and getting some films mm. out of that and some TV shows that aren't trash, you know, that, <laughs> they're, they're actually, that are not just trying to recreate the game experience, but just you know add to that world or tell a new story in that world. It does feel like it's generally about yeah, budget or scope is usually the thing. Mm. It, it kills it. Plus. 
um, I guess mostly it's been used in like a marketing sense, I suppose, you know, like, oh, you, um, go and call this number and it will say, oh, go see Ghostbusters in a cinema or something, you know, um, which, is, which is fine. And I guess it's harder to do that in terms of like it being integral to digest the whole experience because it's kind of like when you talk about branching stories or if someone misses an audio log or something, it's like, are you diluting it? Does the, the, the audience need to digest all those different things in order to get the whole thing or how much is optional and stuff? Um, this one, it probably won't make it onto the the podcast this bit, but with Erica we did try, because we were talking about, on it with Erica we um, did do this one thing where there's like a code written in a book in the game and then there's a radio with, if you tune through it, we've built like all these different radio stations and there was going to be like a weird Morse code thing and then you put those two together and it gives you some GPS, no, it gives you a phone number and you phone his phone number and it's one of the actors in the game, which immediately they were like, okay, so you have to do it every single language recording version of that character in the game, which is, and there's like nine of them, I think, something like that, so that would be a headache. And they were gonna give you some GPS coordinates, which if you take the GPS coordinates, that takes you to like a real world location, which then, it, that has some like weird, um, what do they call that, ARG stuff? Mm. And then that sends you to this, this like 1800 sex dungeon where we shot the finale of the game. And then you go down there and we arranged with the people that own that dungeon to have like a secret room in the cave <laughs> This sounds amazing! <laughs> and that was a secret room of all of our props and, uh, and stuff, and we got permission to do all of that. Um, but for reasons outside of Flavorworks, we weren't allowed to do it. Oh man, oh. that would have been amazing. And very punch drunk, we were talking about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, but this is when we were trying to wrap the game. We didn't need anything more to put on our yeah. face, but we were just like, wouldn't it be crazy? <laughs> <laughs> it was after those few too many Proseccos with your mum. So that was going to be really fun, right? Um, but yeah, like it's a lot of work for an optional thing. And in that case, it came retroactively after you bought the game, right? Um, so um, it was less about the whole marketing side and more about just expanding the world. And, um, but yeah, it did become this thing of like the questions were, well, how about people that don't live in the UK? How do you expect them to go and take a, like, a flight over to go find this thing? And what if they're disappointed and they're like, oh, I wasted all this money on a flight? Um, and then what if they just weren't clever enough to find all the clues? And um, so many different variables make that tricky. But yeah, I guess also in terms of just like traditional transmedia in terms of like, um, books, film, games, that's something we're also been thinking about as well. Can you do, rather than a one-shot story, think about building an IP that can be digested. So uh, you could take or leave the comic book and you could take or leave the game and take or leave the, the film, um, which is kind of like what The Matrix started, tried to do all that, all that time ago. Yeah, and that was the, the biggest example I've seen of it. But I guess with them it was such a huge budget, The Matrix, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm. And, and an existing fan base by the time they had that as oh, well. Oh yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, big, exactly. Yeah. Cool, thank you so much for that question, it was great. Yeah, thank you. Um, we've got time for one more. Yep, just there. Um, first, thank you all for the talk and the work you've done to the industry. Um, but my question is mainly, there's this push now for systemic games and these big, huge, immersive sims and these great cinematic worlds. But looking at something like Red Dead Redemption 2, which I think is the most recent example, and going back a bit more to things like Kingdom Come, which came out last year, they've got these great systemic, these systemic cinematic worlds, but their narrative is very much separated from the gameplay. So how can we as developers not fall into that trap where we have great gameplay and an interesting narrative and a great world, but they don't really feel all connected together? Mm. Good question. Yeah. Uh, well, in our, in our case, well, when it comes to writing design, 
they are one and the same. So like we don't throw over like the design doesn't throw over like a design concept over the wall to the writers and they writing like cutscenes or, or giving context to missions or anything like that. I think that's something that's changed over the last few years is is those those two disciplines becoming essentially intertwined, becoming more or less the same thing. Um, and uh, so that's one of the things. Um, with us as well, it's 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 a lot simpler because everything starts with the narrative because it's filmed. And our problem becomes more: how do we create this sensation of a systemic world? Because you know that it's all filmed beforehand, so you know there's a little sense of, you know, nothing can be emergent. But you know, we're trying our best to do it. Plus, also, it's expensive to go and film lots and lots and lots of, lots and lots of lots of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, we're we're kind of in a similar boat with being very heavily narrative focused rather than systemic. Um, and I kind of feel like there's uh, there's a push for games to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, Red Dead is just massive. You know, I, I worked on Red Dead briefly, and and it's just this huge, you know, ginormous game. And I, you know, I totally get what you mean. Is like this: you feel like you do whatever you want, and then you dip in for some story, and then you come back out, you do whatever you want, you dip in from story. And I, I I do think that those games will always struggle to have uh, the same kind of story experience that you would get from a, a completely linear narrative game or a film because of so many of the tools that you use in film and, and in writing or pacing and, and character development and stuff, they, only, they work because of the way we deliver them and when the player can interrupt that with 15 hours of searching for hidden packages around a city, mm. you will break that. You, know, you, you absolutely mm. will break that and there's not much, you, I don't believe there's that much you can do to circumvent that when without creating a billion stories to deal with every possible situation. It's yeah. like, you know, yeah. the time of day stuff. We're, that we're a bit more hard. in between when it comes to that. Like, we're really systematic, but we're also trying to do that story. And I think we're kind of trying to make the world make sense. But you need to understand the story for the world to make sense because of the story. And they're a little bit more intertwined. Uh, and we're not... Uh, as huge as, as Red Dead, but we still have a really, really large open yeah. world. Um, but it's very much about, we, we guide the player a bit mm. more, and, and we're just guiding it into the main story and trying mm. to have it interesting enough and have these like giant encounters and mm. tons of gameplay and interesting stuff happening within mm. the story. Mm. So you kind of want to continue investigating the story because you have so much more gameplay there to see and experience as well. I guess it, it comes down a lot to the, yeah, the context around the story for the thing you're making. If you're Red Dead, then you're supposed to be a nobody in a world that's eating you whole. And so if you're going to be walking around, like you're not really going to hear people talking about things that you've done in the same way that if... Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I guess if you're Spider-Man, you're playing Spider-Man, you're walking around, and people are going to be like, oh, did you see what Spider-Man did? So you're mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, that, my, my actions are being reflected yeah. in that wider context. Yeah, we do that as well, yeah. because obviously you're like this outcast, and you're this real special person, so like your kind of reputation precedes you. Mm -hmm. So the world starts interacting with you more, and you feel like you're more one of the world. Mm. It's a really interesting note to end on of, of how we make stories work and, and don't sacrifice kind of story when we're looking at game systems. So thank you very much. And thank you so much to you guys. It's just been an incredible insight for the last hour and 15. So thank you. And thank you to you guys for coming to this panel on cinematic game worlds. Let's give you guys a massive round of applause.
for joining us and remember, you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.